Welcome to the Ag Emerge Podcast, brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. Your farming challenges are unique, so your practices should be too. We're here to share emerging ideas, build connections, and provoke conversation. Get ready to improve your soil, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm your producer, Kim Chase. And I'm your host, Monty Bottens. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to the Ag Emerge podcast. Today we welcome David Brandt of Brandt Farms and Walnut Creek Seed. If you know your soil health and no-till history and follow the leaders in those areas, then you know how fortunate we are to get to visit with David. He's been no-tilling since 1971, back when they called it trash farming and a whole lot of other things. But David would not be deterred. He continued to test systems, implement cover crops, and utilize livestock to improve soil health. Listen in to this great conversation as he and Monty talk about the history, the present, and the exciting future on their farm. Welcome to this episode of the Ag Emerge podcast. I'm greatly blessed to be joined by a real leader, pioneer in regenerative ag movement, probably 40 years before the word regenerative ag was even known. Uh, I mean, this, this is the trailblazer in person on the podcast today. Welcome, Dave Brandt. Thank you very much. You know, it's, uh, well, it's interesting I, to see how the, uh, the uh, movement has changed from the time I began in 1971, you know. Yeah, so uh, you're just only 50 years of experience. You don't have much to offer our guests today? Not really, no. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, we'll try to get somebody with 60 or 70 years in the future. So uh, listeners, you're just going to have to uh, tolerate Dave's uh, only five decades of experience. So, no, let's talk a little bit about that. What is wrong with you, Dave? Why did you decide to go no-till when it was definitely not cool? Well, uh, well to make a real long story short, we actually planted our first no-till field in 1969. Uh, we was on a 700-acre farm. My wife and I was running it. Uh, we had uh, about 90 Charlet cows that we calved and finished out and somewhere close to 100 sows we was fairing to finish and uh, we just did not have time to do all the tillage work that we needed on that 700 acres uh, so we tried uh, a 30 acre field that I was able to rent that came out of uh, set aside programs back from the 50s you know and uh, I know we'll forget, we started planting corn in there and it was briars and multiflora rows and stuff. And my grandfather was about 82 years old at that time. And that he came over and he looked at me, he grabbed his hat and pulled it down over his ears. And he says, my God, boy, what are you doing? And I says, uh, well, we're trying to plant corn, Grandpa. And uh, well, he says, good luck, but I know you're not going to make anything, you know. So that was the way it started. <laughs> so uh, real encouraging is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, he, he was real encouraged with it. Uh, but interesting, that field of corn made 100 bushel in the fall, which was a lot of corn back in 69, uh, you know. And uh, I know we'll forget it when we was in the had a John Deere 45 combine with no cab, and he was helping me. And he says, I've never seen so much corn from a field you've never done anything to, David. And I said, well, we're learning, you know. And, uh, 
he became one of my best spokesmen when I'd go out to speak somewhere. I'd always take Grandpa with me, and he would tell about that story, how he doubted it worked, you know, but proved him wrong. I mean, sometimes I bet you'd probably go to farmer groups, and, and you could give a one-hour presentation, and then Grandpa could say something, maybe one sentence or something afterwards for 30 seconds, and then that made all the difference. That's right. He sure did. He surely uh, was one to um, put the message forward. And I think a lot of uh, places I went just enjoyed to see how excited he was about it as old as he was, you know. And, uh, That's awesome. It's been a real, it's been a real venture. Uh, I remember we first started and was running with a Chevron chemical company introduced uh, Gromoxone or Paraquat at that time. You know, and then all we had was atrazine and 2,4-D as a chemical when we first started. And uh, uh, we were called trice farmers. And then the, there was a big sign that went up in, the, at our, in our hometown that says, uh, no-till farming means no corn. You know, <laughs> so uh, it's, been a, uh, it's been a real venture. And uh, it was fun to work with Chevron Chemical. I worked with uh, DuPont. When they come out with Blade X and those kind of things early in the uh, uh, late 70s, and uh, then Monsanto come on the scene in the early 90s, and uh, you know, I've worked with all those companies and uh, worked with Deer. I bought the first uh, John Deere 7000 no-till planter Deer made. It's going over was a one, and uh, uh, so that's. Uh, we had a lot of fun, you know, just learning and had a lot of fun. And we had a lot of field days. Uh, we try to have a field day every year and, and uh, get people to bring equipment. And of course, uh, the policy on David's farm, when you show up, you come a day before you set up your drill, you had to leave by four o'clock and leave the keys in the tractor. You know, uh, I had to, I had old tractors. I had a 720 John Deere and a Davy Brown and boy to pick some of these new tractors out with calves and be able to run them you know that was pretty much fun and I'd run them drills and planters as hard as I could for an evening see how well they performed if they didn't plug up they was back where they found out but if they did plug up they sat in the middle field with corn fodder clear over the top of the seed box sometimes you know <laughs> uh, what a time those companies had when they showed up in the morning and there was 450 people looking at that drill with fodder piled up on it, you know. <laughs> oh, man, I sure, I'm sure they appreciated that. Um, oh, yes. Well, what I was heard earlier is you said your first field was on, on a rental farm. So first off, okay, so you're, you're doing it on a rental farm, not your own. Okay. Yes. <laughs> and that was no deal. Yes. But you also mentioned you've been cover cropping since 1971, correct? Correct. So yes. it only took you two years to get the cover cropping in no-till. And I know people have been no-tilling for 25 years that are just getting started on cover crops. What, how did you make that connection so early on and definitely before it was cool in the magazines? Well, I think our, the connections we made was that, you know, we played with it the first year in 69. Uh, then we didn't do anything with that soil. It was starting to wash away and it was on like a 20% slope. And uh, well, we just had to do something, you know. So then we put in cereal rye and, and Harry Vetch, you know. And uh, uh, that was another real experience. <laughs> and uh, uh, that's how we began. And of course, the cow calf herd we had, it was great to be able to take uh, uh, 
take the wheat off and uh, put something in there. Usually we had clover in it because that was easy to do. You just broadcast it in the spring and mm-hmm. when it was freezing and thawing, you had a clover crop you could make hay off of. But then we learned that we could do uh, other things after the wheat come off to have a better cover crop that would build nitrogen in the soil. And uh, we played with that for nine or 10 years till we thought we had it uh, uh, where we'd like to keep talking about it, you know? And uh, we did a lot of research with uh, different legume crops to find out how much nitrogen each one would produce. And then in the late uh, 90s, we learned how to blend them together. So now we're in the process of using about four to five legumes with about three to four grasses and two brassicas. And that seems to be the mix that works extremely well after wheat to rejuvenate these wore out fields that we're able to rent because no one makes any money off of them. Mm-hmm. Very, very wow. good. Now, just uh, out of curiosity, when you're, when you're haying that clover crop or that still that's primarily your legume that, you, that you'd be haying after wheat or, yes. or when you did at least, um, would you hay it again the next spring prior to planting your subsequent cash crop? Because yeah, we always kept it one year into the hay crop. Yes, correct. So you get one, one cutting the following year. You get a cutting in the fall and a cutting in the spring. Spring, correct. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Good. And, and then we, you know, as we grew, we ended up with 200 Charlet cows and 200 sows. So that, that just made the no-till a whole lot easier. Uh, the neat thing about calving, we... We used to calve in February and March because we thought we needed to get those calves on the ground and, you know, maybe try to have a five to 600 pound calf in the fall, mm-hmm. you know, and then all of a sudden uh, we'd plant the corn too early and we'd have to go out and figure out what insect ate it or what happened to it and then replant it. So we changed, I got smart enough to change my calving program so that we started calving on the first day of May run through the 28th of May before the calves were all done or cows were all done. So I didn't worry about planting corn in May. <laughs> so it was always warm. And, you know, the last of May, first of June, corn come up in three days and that seemed to solve all our insect pressure problems that we were having. So it just made life a lot easier. So we've had a lot of, a lot of failures, not too many successes, but we've learned an awful lot, you know. You realize, Dave, uh, you're, you're very um, uh, counter to what most farmers think. You know, if I heard you right, you doubled your, your cow and your sow numbers. And, and because you no-tilled, most people would just till more and get rid of the livestock. You know, that's, that's the cool thing to do is to keep the tillage and get rid of the livestock. But you, you went to no-till to be able to do more livestock. Correct. Right. Yes. And, you know, the livestock was a big key because we had we had two packing houses in Columbus at that point in time. And, uh, you know, we were growing what they said was what they wanted for their market. And uh, I really have to say, I thought we had good cattle and hogs, you know, because I was growing them. But, uh, you know, uh, we were doing really well. It was on a partnership or we was a, another person owned the land and we were the labor force for, and we all learned a lot. Uh, and that's what made it exciting for us. There was some lots of hard times and lots of trouble, but uh, you know, you learn to work through them. Mm-hmm. And uh, never carried crop insurance. Not not that I'm opposed to crop insurance, 
but never carried it because I thought it, every time I checked with it, it had restrictions on what I could do. Mm-hmm. You know? And uh, so I guess I was mad enough or mean enough or something, whatever it took to uh, say, well, you know, if this corn crop dies or the hail takes it out in June, we'll plant something else, you know? And there's been years we've planted all our corn ground to canola. There's been years it all went to sorghum, grain sorghum. I mean, uh, when you got livestock and they're eating about 85% of what you grow, you know, you got to make sure you got feed for them. Right. And plus it gives you flexibility. You know, the, the only, I mean, really, finally this year, the, the crop insurance rules are very flexible and that can yes. still vary by state, especially in the Western states where they're under 20 inches of rainfall. That's a problem. But um, that, that finally this year. So, yes. uh, but in the past, they've been very limiting on, on, the, on what you can do. So that is exciting. Yeah, that, was a, that was a good thing. You know, like I said, I went to, I had been to Washington. I've also testified in front of uh, uh, the crop insurance people. I was testified in front of Congress, how I thought they should change the rules. And, you know, that was probably seven or eight years ago, but it was a way to plant the seed to get those people in charge to understand how regenerative agriculture, which I'll call it now, can help, you know? And uh, I think that's an idea, you know? Yeah, just for fun. Uh, let's, let's go through all the names that this has been called, you know, today, like you said, it's regenerative ag, uh, right prior to that, it was, it was soil health. I think right prior to that, it was soil quality. Uh, then it was what, uh, soil, well, sustainable agriculture, sustainable agriculture. Yeah. What else has it been called, Dave? Let's, let's keep adding to the list. Yeah. As you went. Further back, it was called trash farming or ugly farming or I farm ugly, you know. Uh, uh, Those are some of the characteristics and names that was attached to what we was trying to do, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, I really think, I really like this regenerative part because it's like, it's like when we talk about how we can improve things and, you know, we've, we've, we have, uh, as producers, we have beat up this soil immensely with tillage and plows and everything. And uh, most of the livestock went to confinement, you know, so we don't have the opportunity to have it. And there's no more fences because we were taught in the eighties from the universities to take out all the fences and put the cattle in the barn, you're better off. You know, I did it too. Uh, today, I wish I had all the fences back and I've tore out cause I'm sure they were still deter some animals you know i just and, wish uh, i had all the water lines and the wells that we got rid of you know yeah, right. um, like, uh, you know who uh, needs a hydrant out in the middle of that 160 acre field get rid of it oh yeah. i would i would pay big money to have a hydrant in the middle of a 160 acre field today <laughs> yes uh, but i really i really like the uh, the uh the word regenerative because it means that we're going to build the soils back you know, sometimes, you know, you have to refer back to the Bible and the Proverbs, you know, he talked about how you plant the seed on the soils and some of it fell on the rocky places and some of it fell on the paths and, and some of it fell on good soil. So, you know, I think the regenerative is what we're doing. We're bringing back the soils to make us uh, more profitable, more resilient, uh, 
with and a better quality nutrients in those grains that were producing regeneratively. Yep. You know. Yeah, it has has a much greater meaning than just sustaining, and um, that that's what I really appreciate about it. So we can say we're building back soils better, or we can say we're making soils great again, depending on which which brand you like to follow, right? That's correct. Right. <laughs> right. Yes, sir. Okay, so I apologize for having having a little fun here for a little bit, but I, I do have to know how many different you are the cover crop king. How many different cover crops do you think you have planted in total since you began this journey? Uh, what are some of the more unique ones you've had? Well, you know, we tried uh, uh, we've tried about every color of pea that you can find. Uh, we've tried every type of vetch we can find. Uh, we're still sticking mainly with hairy vetches. Uh, we like it really well. Some of the vetches tend to hang on longer. Some of our vetches are harder to kill. Uh, most, of the, most of the vetches won't produce as much nitrogen as hairy will. You know, uh, some unique ones we really like and began working with uh, is uh, Crimson Clover. I, when we started with it uh, nine years ago, I called Ohio State University and talked to the to the uh, uh, lab person about what we should, how we should plant it and what we should do with it. And he said, David, he says, I'm just telling you, it won't grow north of the Ohio River. You know, he says, so there's no use to bring it in. It's a Kentucky plant. And I thought, well, okay, but we tried it. It really went well. Now it probably won't make the kind of seed. It will make some seed, but it won't make the seed like it does in Kentucky because we don't let it grow that long. You know, another was a, a sun hemp, sun hemp, which is an African plant. You know, and uh, nine years ago I went to a meeting and this nice young man stood up and he was talking and he showed this picture of this plant and he showed it and it was a pretty nice seed and. About four or five weeks later, it was six foot tall. And in three months, it was 25 foot tall. And when he dug the roots, it had nodules the size of tennis balls on it, you know? And I says, when he got done his meeting, I says, by golly, I got to have one, some of that, you know? I said, so I talked to him and I never forget. He says, yeah, Mr. Brand, he says, I'll send it to you. He says, I'll even send you the seed free, but you got to pay the freight, you know? And I says, fine. And I forgot about it, you know, and it was like August the 20th when my wife came out to the field and we were planting some cover crops and she says, UPS is up at the house at the head and she says, there's a burlap bag that they threw down on the ground, but they want $420 for the freight. She says, what'd you order? And I said, well, I don't know, but just pay the guy and then I'll come up and look at it tonight when I get done, you know. And got up there and here it was, this bag from Africa, you know, with the sun hemp seeds in it. <laughs> So we planted, I think we planted on the 25th of August. And I thought, man, you know, I just can't hardly wait. So we watched it grow. And it was, it was a summer that was about 90 degrees and, and about normal rainfall. So it only got about four foot tall. I was so disappointed. You know, I thought yeah, we found nodulation like peas. So it didn't do any better nodulating than the, than the winter peas did, you know. But uh, man, did they ever have a root system on it. So we're still using it. Uh, we use it in our blends. I like to think about using warm season legumes and cool season legumes, as well as warm season grasses 
and cool season grasses, because if we mix them all together, we can actually, and I shouldn't say this out loud, but I will, we're trying to fool mother nature because I don't know when we make these plans, what August and September is gonna be. I don't know whether it's gonna be a hot summer or a cool wet summer. So that way we know something's gonna grow, you know? And we found out with more species, they tend to challenge each other. So they hang in there longer in the soils and do lots of nice things for us, you know? And plus that gives you, if you have, uh, you know, that early August planting window, you have enough time for the, the summers to do something. Yes. And then the, the winters are there after the frost and they continue on without having to do a second planting. So, I mean, right, right. it's a good, good, not only the diversity, but it allows a, a continuous living root to, to persist, you know, through the winter and in the next spring. So, and you know, it, it really works well behind wheat because it allows us to clean up the wheat fields after we harvest the wheat because of, you know, if we plant cover crops July the 4th when we harvest the wheat, 99 out of 10, they'll go to seed, you know, and we don't want the, our cover crops to go to seed because it takes the nodulation from the roots and moves it to make seed. So we're always waiting until about the last of July, the 1st of August to plant. So this way we get uh, our combines of silver cedar, a gleaner, you know, uh, uh, so we call it our silver cedar. So we'll have these little paths behind it where the wheat grows or the briar, the barley grows. And then we have some other hard to control obnoxious weeds, you know, like Johnson grass or ball panic or something. So we can spray them out, make the place clean, and then plant the cover crop. And that extra 60 days of growth or 30 days of growth you get uh, just means uh, the difference of two to three foot on a cover crop and two or three foot on a root growth. So uh, fellas that's trying to do cover crops behind corn and beans, they get some satisfaction, but not near as much as you do if you happen to have wheat in your rotation, you know. Yep, that's true. So typical, uh, well, this is a, I know there's no such thing as a, a Dave Brandt typical rotation. <laughs> so yes, this, is. this yes, is a bad <laughs> question to ask but so after the wheat you'd have your summer cover crops with your warm cool season warm season blend come yes. over and i would suppose after that you are are you getting enough nitrogen then to go to corn yes Follow we get the corn corn bean right. rotation is what you're doing corn then after the corn comes off we go to rye okay. plant, the, plant the rye in the fall plant soybeans in the spring and then the only crop we don't have a cover crop for is our small cereal grain crop after the soybeans because we're harvesting the beans and we don't have enough time to get something in. And they yeah. are they are the quote unquote cover crop compared to what your neighbor would have. Yes, or, correct. Not your neighbor, but your conventional farmer. We won't pick farmers up right if he's listening. Right. <laughs> and we, you know, with with this rotation, it makes it really simple for David because. We have 333 acres of corn, we have 333 acres of beans, and we have 333 acres of wheat. So there's no doubt in my mind after we take the corn crop off, what goes in? You know, it goes to rye and then goes to beans. And all the beans go to small grains. So, you know, I don't have to worry about what's going to happen. <laughs> there you go. And it makes it real, real simple for us. So, and when we can do that, we can lower our nitrogen rates by about 
That was my very next question. So you beat me to it. So you're lowering your yes. typical applied nitrogen because you're getting probably with that sun hemp and those kind of things anywhere from 80 to 120, maybe even 150 units of nitrogen from those cover crops right. that come after the wheat. Yes, after the wheat, right. Plus right. Oh. the decomposition of that wheat residue in that season versus the following spring competing for nutrient uptake with your corn. Correct, correct. Haven't you seen that before? At least when I work with farmers in Montana, especially, they get a, a big layer of thatch built up on after, you know continuous small grain production. Right. And right. Uh, that cover crop gives the biology to, a chance to break it down, right? Yes, sir. That's right. Because well, you got your nitrogen from your leaves that's falling down on on the carbon from the from their small grain crop, and you know that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to get trying to bring our carbon to nitrogen ratio back to a balance. Because you know the wheat in rotation makes it a high carbon source, so if we get some legumes in behind that, we can bring that back down to a twenty to one or a thirty to one, whatever you desire to have. You know, and plus what we've seen with doing it earlier, our roots go deeper, so we'll have roots uh, from twenty-four to uh, sixty to seventy inches deep, which allows us to bring up uh, copper, magnesium. Uh, phosphorus, some potassium, uh, some calcium. So our home farm that we started no-tilling in 71, the pH was five, uh, six, eight, six, nine. Today it is six, nine. And we've not hauled any lime since 71. Hmm. Wow. You know, <laughs> so we're seeing our cover crops bring up a lot of calcium to help us out, you know. Right. And plus without the addition of uh, commercial fertilizers too. That's helping with that's, uh, that's and and like you said, you're balancing from the subsoil. So that, yeah. and that in Ohio is a big deal. Uh, I don't it know how many deal. people realize that, but very wet, very acidic, really parent soils, and and you have problems with aluminum toxicity, four and a half pH or lower in your subsoil. So that that that's a big deal. That's a big deal. You're right. right. <clears throat> and on the same token, with that biomass up there in the range of 15 to 20,000 pounds uh, per acre. You know, it's about three inches thick. So we actually suppress a lot of the broad leaves. We actually suppress some grasses, not a lot of them, but some. So our herbicide program is in reduction by 50% or better. You know? So other, other than 75% reduction in nitrogen, 51% uh, or 50% reduction in your herbicide program and likely uh, how many fungicides do you spray, Dave? I mean, you've got to have that corn leaf blight and tar spot and rust and gray leaf spot and all those things, right? Well, we have not sprayed a fungicide or insecticide for, for 10 years. Why would you want to kill your friends? Yes, right. So Now, we have done some trials. Just because my agronomist says you're using this corn, it needs to have a fungicide. So, you know, we will put on probably five or six acres of fungicide in a field to see if there is a difference, you know? And that's how we learn. And for the last four years, he's never seen a difference in the yield other than it may take 10 bushel away if we put a fungicide on. Hmm. Interesting. We, don't see, we have never seen a plus. We, we, have, we have the same agronomist or that needs, you gotta spray it because it's susceptible hybrid and it looks bad, no doubt. I mean, no, no fault yes. of his, it, it looked affected. Uh, we did have a four bushel positive advantage. Yes, but by no means does that economically pay, let alone the long-term impacts of potential soil 
you know, hurt. So well, yeah, I, I have to laugh at some some agronomists are really good and some are you know this way, but my agronomist thinks it needs to be put on. You put it on with an airplane, you do the whole field, and he says, Did you see a yield bump? Well, <laughs> how would you ever know? It's awful, <laughs> it's awful hard to find out if you got a yield bump if you sprayed the whole field, you know. <laughs> and just on a side note, same way with herbicides, right? How do you know that you don't have yes. a yield hit from a herbicide because you always spray the whole field? And, and it's always fascinating right. if you ever happen to have a little corner or a place that you miss with a herbicide and you look at the corn in there, obviously there's weeds, okay? But you look at it and it's yes. like, wow, that really looks good. And you wonder how much they are affecting us, so. Yeah, yeah. Well, well I think you know, what we've done, you know, how we've learned is by reducing uh Sometimes it got us. I mean, you know, let's face it. Sometimes we made a mistake, and I'm not afraid to admit it. But uh, you know, if you leave uh, six rows or eight rows without fertilizer or without nitrogen, and maybe you put six or eight more rows on with half, and then you do the balance of the field with what you normally do because you feel better about it, you know. But then when you come out there at the combine, and where you didn't put uh, maybe only. 20 pounds of nitrogen on and then steel yield is the same as where you put on 200 well you remember that for the next year you know yeah it makes you feel really bad doesn't it well i mean to me it makes a learning curve out of it because if you can do that for a couple of years run and then you know exactly what your cover crops can do for you and i i guess i can't tell producers enough that they need to do some trials and errors or trials to find out how this is going to work on their soils you mm -hmm. know because if they're sandy soils, it may take more nitrogen because it tends to leach away. If they're on heavy clay soils, it's wet. You don't need much, you know. Mm -hmm. But I, I don't know whether producers are willing to experiment or whether they just want the university to tell them this is what we do, this is how you do it, and then they got somebody to blame, you know. Well, for those producers that aren't waiting on the university um, and they want to bring a little more diversity into their farm, their crop rotation and cover crops, what are some, what are some tips you give people starting out to, to consider or some, some thought, some of the thought process? I'm not asking for the specific formula because you don't know where they're located and such, but what are some of the things you, you first start to question, have a farmer think about differently? Well, I, I, I used to like to start with them, you know, and say, you know, they're corner bean producers, they're used to doing tillage. So maybe you take a field and try rye cover. Now, I don't care how you get it out there. You can blow it on with a high boy. You can blow it on with an airplane, or you can wait till harvest is over and plant it. Yep. And keep the rates fairly low, you know, 30, 40 pounds the acre. Now, you're still going to have to use a herbicide because it's not going to be thick enough to suppress the weeds, but they get used to looking at something green. I mean, Good point. The, you know, the first year, the first guy tries it and it gets wet in the spring. And all of a sudden, the rye six and a half and seven foot tall, my phone's ringing off the hook. What am I going to do? How am I going to handle this? You know, uh, wow, what do I do? And I just tell them to plant it, you know. Uh, and I said, you know, if you want to kill it early, you can do that. But you're not going to get the benefit of it if you wait and plant green into it. But, you know, they have, we have to let these producers understand how to work with what they've got and try to educate them as we go and be there to answer their questions when they have them. Because I think that's been a problem with a lot of the 
cost share programs to get cover crop in. We give them money for cost share, but there's no one there to answer the question or hold their hand when something goes wrong. Because today's equipment, no matter what color it is, it don't matter, is all heavy enough to do no-till work into cover crop. Mm -hmm. You know, there's no reason they can't do it. And we have an infiltration problem, not a runoff problem. Because if we could infiltrate the water, we would not have a runoff problem. That is so true. And, and we have some pretty amazing videos of that. Um, but yeah, we can, you know, our, our soils become so poor performing, you know, absorbing maybe half an inch an hour. And, right. and our, today's, today's rain events are two, three, six inches an hour. And, yeah. and, and, they're, and they're three to four weeks apart, you know, so. And we are, we are working with Ohio State on water quality for the last two years, it's been interesting. They have a, they have a flume that they have installed in a area where it's supposed to collect the water and run off on the surface. We also have a flume on a 12 inch tile, uh, which has worked really well for them because we have flow on 120 acres that's tiled. So they've had, had constant flow so they can monitor that. The interesting thing, the flume for the surface water is there's about a 27 acre watershed that would fill this flume with water. And it's been there for two years and they've only had one rainfall event get into the flume. <laughs> the rest yeah, of us also Their sensors in. broke is the problem, Dave. It's not, it's not your infiltration. <laughs> right. Yes, this first one they had in was two by three. So it was three foot wide and two foot long and narrowed down. And the professor come last summer and he says, David, he says, we just ain't getting any water in this. And I said, well, I says, you know, we can infiltrate six inches an hour here. And uh, he says, well, we're going to pull it out. And I said, no, I said, I don't want you to. And he says, well, we'll be back. So he brings an eight by 12 flume in and then puts 40 foot of tuba sixes to direct the water into it. So it's bigger, you know, it's like having a bigger truck. You haul more, make more money, you know. <laughs> but anyhow, uh, after they put it in, they had one rainfall event and we've had five or seven events where we had over two and a half inches in less than a half an hour. So you can, you know, it's, uh, it's fun to hear his explaining of what's going on, you know. Well, I, I, I find that interesting. Plus the tile, how much did you get out of that tile that serviced 120 acres? Uh, well, normal flow is about an inch and a half or two coming out of this 12 inch tile at the bottom. Mm -hmm. When we have mm -hmm. a rainfall event, they claim it raises about two inches, but it stays there for five to seven days longer than a neighbor's tile that's on conventional that has a large flush with a lot of mud in it, you know, a lot of silt in it. Hmm. So uh, uh, it's really interesting to see the two different comparisons that they have, you know. So you're taking in water faster and you're, you're yes. holding it longer. Uh, giving Longer it, it, releases it, slower. it releases it slower so that's why you know we didn't have these flooding issues in you know years past is because years past. the, the landscape right. function like this in, in total in a prairie system so yes very very interesting well let's uh switch gears just a little bit from from the production side uh to talk a little bit more about the output side so you know 
we've heard Dave approaches things a little bit differently and he's, he's pretty simple, straightforward and has a goal on it, but now he's creating higher value crops and more diverse crops and such. You do a lot. You've really had a lot of focus on your, on your output. So you're, you're not too interested in just loading up the grain truck, taking it to the elevator. Are you? Not really, not really. We're, we're doing an awful lot of work with nutrient dense amino acid grains. Uh, we're trying to find, uh, producers that have livestock that's interested in a higher quality grain. Uh, most of our grains are between nine and 12% protein for corn. Uh, soybeans are running 42 to 44% protein. Uh, can't tell you what wheat is because we haven't done much work uh, with our wheat because uh, it's tough to find a protein market for wheat for us, you know. So it mainly is a crop we just sell to ADM or something like that and let it go. Uh, uh, in the last three months, we've changed gears and we are now milling a lot of our own wheat and corn uh, to go from farm to table. So we've started a little uh, retail business selling flowers and corn meals, uh, which is not going to take all the 900 acres or 300 acres of corn, but... Uh, it sure helps uh, on one end, you know. Oh, absolutely. And so you're, you're looking for places where people will in bulk pay you for the, the value add that you're doing in nutrient density and particularly the protein, but talk right. a little bit about the milling that you're doing and, and what, what is it like working with, working with those buyers and what they're looking for? Well, it's been quite interesting uh, for me because uh, I never thought you just you just ground it up and you ate it, you know. Well, there's about 25 different sizes of cornmeal that somebody wants. It seems like they want it from coarse to fine, and uh, but with the way we can do it, we can meet whatever the uh, processor would like to have, you know. And we have uh, we have some bakers that want our cornmeal really fine, so they can line their oven with the cornmeal and then put their dough on top of it and make bread with it. Uh, uh, we're using uh, open pollinated corn. Uh, so we're growing about 100 acres of open pollinated corn and it happens to be uh, yellow, red, and blue. And some orange corn, which is a uh, uh, really dark orange and it's a flint corn and really makes a nice meal. And then we're growing some artisan wheats like uh, turkey red, uh, red fife, and uh, icorn wheats that are uh, worth a whole lot of money if you can get them into flour. So how did you, I mean, how do you stumble across where to get the seed and are you growing and retaining that seed for yourself on the open pollinated? I mean, okay, so what, what is, okay, we have, we have Dave Brandt's mind going a million miles an hour and then how, how does everybody else on your team or your helpers keep up to find all this stuff to make the vision happen? Well, you know, I've got two grandsons on the farm and my, my son comes home. He's here about two hours every evening and uh, each one of them has their uh, opinion on how to get this done. So I just let them do their thing. And grandpa kind of oversees it and uh, we are able to find stuff. Uh, the grandsons are real good on the internet and they can find the seeds that we need and uh, we just get enough to plant maybe eight or 10 acres. And then from there, we can, since it's open pollinated, we can keep the seed and clean it and have our own seed available. 
you know, which is really nice. That is, that is great. And don't you think over time, as you retain your own seed in a scenario like that, you're, you're selecting for a seed that's going to be best adapted to your area over time? I believe that's true. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I, I, we're, we're taking that approach on our own farm with soybeans now and um, want to, want to try to get into the open pollinated and for our direct marketing business, I think there's some opportunity right. there. It won't be huge, but it, it's, it's diversity, right? Yeah. Well, you know, it's really, I guess we're in a unique situation. We're only about uh, 15 minutes from downtown Columbus. Um, the population is growing really fast around us. Um, you know, I don't think if we was in the middle of Utah and it was 10, 10 hours to the to the grocery store, whether we would mill much corn or not, you know, I mean, but we just happen to be in an area where this is going to work out real well, where we can do a lot of farm to table stuff. So one of the opportunities, you know, when we're, we're trying to enable regenerative agriculture and, and make it possible, you know, for, for everyone, um, large scale farmers and, and small scale farmers, everyone in between, what are, what are some of the things that you see out there right now that's, that's missing Dave, as far as um, knowledge base, uh, technology and tools? Um, where do you see are some opportunities for, for those who are wanting to make a difference, make an impact in regenerative agriculture that are supporting farmers? What are your needs? Well, I think, I think what, what, uh, what I see is uh, the real need is as we do regenerative farming is the education, how to get started, how to mentor someone. Uh, I cannot believe how well people that is in the regenerative movement want to share. You know, I mean, uh, if you work with conventional farmers, they're more tight-lipped, let's say, or they won't talk to you about their operation because they're afraid what they do is a secret, you know, and maybe their neighbor, if they picked up one thing, would take land from them or something, you know. Mm -hmm. But I think when we look at regenerative farming, it's, uh, it's new, it's exciting, uh, it's time consuming, it takes management. Everything we do in regenerative agriculture takes management. And you do that by taking the, the work you'd have done with tillage and maybe the extra herbicide passes, the extra fungicide passes, and use them for the knowledge to make your regenerative practice work. And that means you have to be in the field observing what you see. You know, you cannot plant the crop and go to Florida and come back and try to harvest it because it ain't going to be there <laughs> as a regenerative farmer. You know, uh, you need to be out there and see how those roots are developing. Look and see if there's insect pressure. Look and see and, you know, uh, whether that plant that you planted six months ahead actually put nodules on it and had nitrogen in the soil. You know, those are the things you, you have to be shovel ready. You have to be out there looking at what's going on, you know. I, I agree. It's um, your shadow. You know, if you look at me, I don't have a very big, you know, my shovel has to have a motor on it in some respects. My wife says, you know, so. <laughs> I like, I like to say the, the, the best thing you can add to a field is your shadow. Yes. You know? correct. And um, right. it's, it's important to observe what's going on. So in, in your mind, Dave, what, what do you think it's going to take uh, for regenerative agriculture to become 
the conventional agriculture? And how, how long will it take to get there? You know, it, it's going to take a while to get there. I don't think, you know, I don't think that it'll ever be uh, 100%. It may never be 50%, you know, uh, because there's just, it, it is really easy in my mind to do conventional farming because you take all the air you can find, you disturb the soil as hard as you can disturb it. You put all the things that disturb the soil, which is chemicals and fertilizer, and you plant the seed. And to me, it might as well be in a plastic bucket with a water hose because we've turned it in, we've turned our soils into a hydroponic greenhouse. You know, as a regenerative farmer, you're a reliant on the moisture you get, understanding how to control that moisture, and that's through infiltration. You're learning to understand how the weather you know, will affect it. So you use plants that maybe mature just a little bit sooner or something like that. So you can get another plant in or even maybe having two or three plants growing that you could harvest at one time and separate. You know, I think that may be the real key. Uh, but I'm really thinking it's the, the, the knowledge of not enough people yet doing it. I mean, uh, I am so thrilled that I would say in 10 years, you know, I started in 71 and there was never been a movement as fast as this went, as this regenerative movement has in 10 years, you know, and, uh, now, uh, the people that's doing it is showing that what we had talked about in the seventies and eighties work, you know, and they've taken it further than I ever expected things could go, you know, and I, about all the ones that are really out pushing regenerative agriculture, uh, I feel like they're my grandkids because they've all been here on the farm, majority of them, you know, I mean, we've all learned together and they're all willing to share with you their mistakes and their well doing or the good things. I mean, uh, a good thing is with regenerative agriculture, you can lower your input costs and still maintain the yield, you know, yeah. and have a higher quality product at the end. So really in your mind, the limiting factor is this management um, bandwidth, essentially the, the capability to manage in a regenerative yeah, way yes. and the time to manage in a regenerative way. Those are probably the two biggest limitations to regenerative agriculture being 51% of how farms produce food. Right. Well, and I think the ones that's just started or ones that hadn't started is, it's what between the ears, that's our limiting factor. Yep, that, that six inch distance between the ears or four inches, what all depends on how big yeah. it is. <laughs> right, yeah, right. <laughs> but you so, know, I, I, really, I really think, you know, as, as we see, Commodity prices hedging up and they're going to hedge up just because of the, the kind of conditions we're in. But you know, as commodity prices go up, then input costs go up. You know, pretty soon the fuel's going to jump up. And you know, we're we're going to be at the same, I guess, two dollar corn uh, and uh, sixty dollar fertilizer is the same as uh, eight six dollar corn today and uh, one thousand dollar nitrogen. You know, I mean, the ratio is damn near the same. You're going to have about the same amount of money left. Mm -hmm. you know yeah and, and when, if we could do it regeneratively and, and reduce that by reduce your inputs by 25 or 30 percent uh not spend the money for tillage 
and car just imagine how much carbon could be saved by not making those two passes or three that conventional farmers make before they plant the seed. So there's a lot of agribusiness that revolves around selling more and more stuff to get more and more yield. Okay. So more, more product inputs, uh, shinier paint that, that goes bigger, better, faster. Um, how do they adapt to regenerative ag versus push the same old? What, how does that happen? How do they reinvent their businesses essentially? Well, I think they're, uh, I where think they're we're supportive of it instead of antagonistic to regenerative ag. I think we're starting to see uh, industry, if I can make that as a big, large consumption. I mean, you could talk about deer, you could talk about Agco, you could talk about uh, CMH, you know, New Holland case. Mm -hmm. uh, and those are the three big ones. But, you know, as you look at what they're talking about, deers talk to me about how they can work with their customers to talk about regenerative ag. You know, they're willing to sit down and talk about it. Uh, you know, the autonomous tractor from deer may be a way that we could put that tractor out there following the combine plant and cover crop. It don't have to move a grain buggy, you know? I, I see lots of possibilities with industry helping us move forward on regenerative ag and they're still being able to stay in business to sell equipment, you know? Mm -hmm. That's a great point. It's uh, just a matter of, of getting them uh, to, to focus on this direction. Is that a fair way to say it? Yes, correct. And I think the majority, you know, the big three are, because, you know, it's not like they're, they're uh, trying to tell you, you can't do it. You know, I mean, uh, I was just impressed that Deer called and even asked me how they could start working with some of their farmers in Iowa and Illinois to talk about regenerative farming. You know, you look at General Mills, you know, yeah. they spent money, a lot of money to figure out how to get their oats and wheat producers to be more regenerative. And, you know, Anheuser-Busch is talking, uh, Nestle's is talking. Uh, it's a good, it, it's going to be a good foundation. I don't think, uh, you know, I guess I'm, I'm really worried about when they talk about yield, feeding the world, I'd rather say we'd feed the world on protein than yield. Because as we build yield, you know, you take 300 bushel corn, there's only got about 4 to 5% protein. So if we go to 600 bushel corn, does it only going to be 2% protein? You know, I mean, uh, how do we feed? Do we give them a lot of bulk and no protein? Or do we slow down and give them a kernel of corn that has 8 or 9% protein? Mm -hmm. You know, right. in 1965, when Eisenhower Ag in 64 and 65, Morris Feed and Feeding said corn should be 8.6 protein and beans should be 44 to 48. You know, uh, so well, the industry is paid for pounds and that's what we're giving them. Right. Right. But I think it's going to the consumer. I think the public consumer will soon start dictating whether what they want, you know, and then, and then agriculture will change. And I think I think that has happened. And they they have a they have a voice now in ways they connect that they, they that they haven't been able to before. So it's pretty well, I think the COVID nineteen kind of brought it on. They got bigger, you know, they couldn't find food in the shelves, you know, now and they found out that you know some of it don't have as much nutrient as it should have in it. 
And there's an awful lot of uh, urbanites, I don't know whether you call them city people or urbanites, that want to know where their food comes from. Mm -hmm. That is very true. So what's the future hold for, for you, your son, grandkids, and, uh, and the whole, whole greater Brant family? Well, you know, we're also in the cover crop seed business. Uh, I'm really looking forward to uh, lots of better things to come along with cover crops. We're working with some breeders that's got some excellent ideas on, on how to get uh, crops to grow in the cooler climates and wetter soils. Uh, we're looking at uh, legume plants that can produce maybe six to 12% more nodulations, which will let us have collect more carbon out of the atmosphere. Uh, the real trend is going to be learned how to harness this carbon horse that's out there. If we can ever corral it and get it understood. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, you know uh, as far as a brand family, we're, we're going to move more to food to table, farm to table stuff. Uh, just because we are having a hard time hanging on to land. Hmm. When you only own 161 acres and you rent the rest of it, uh, and uh, uh, you know you lose a piece by death from a landlord or uh, urban development takes some of it, uh, we we're going to have to learn to adjust to that. And you know, instead of five cars a day now going past our house, we got almost 4,000. So maybe we could capture 10% of that, that'd be 400 a day. That might make a nice uh, retail business. It'd be an awful nice retail business. So, you know, and we are also pursuing uh, with seven or 12 other farmers, maybe building a processing facility for livestock. Hmm. Yeah, very much needed. And uh especially if you can be close to city like that and you can offer fresh meats, you know, year round, uh, you know, and special cut. And there's, there's a tremendous amount of opportunity there. Right. And uh, my second grandson has just bought two emus and he's counting these eggs before they, uh, you know, they're just five day old chicks. So I keep telling him you're counting a lot of eggs before they're going to lay them. So <laughs> well, it's fun uh, to work with grandkids. It really is. I can't tell you how much fun it is it is a joy to see them starting their own little enterprises. So that, yes, that's it is. fun to see that rubbing off. So I'm sure your grandpa felt the same. Yes. Yes. Well, I sure thank you for your time today, Dave, anything else you'd like to add or, or mention while we're together? I just would like to have the producers think about using cover crops or, and start down a regenerative movement. Uh, anything you do, you know, to me, you don't have to be in it all the way. Anything you do to move uh, the needle from where you're at to less soil loss, better infiltration, reduction in inputs such as fuel. And we didn't talk about how much we can reduce the fuel, but by going to regenerative agriculture, but there's about a third of the fuel savings by doing it. Uh, reducing some nutrients, uh, being aware of your surroundings and learning where to go to and listen to webinars or go to field days if you need to, or just 
look up on the web and see who can talk to that's close to you, get close to him so he can actually mentor you through your problems as you start. And I'm always willing to answer my phone. I'm not a big texter, so I'll give you a phone call because when my finger hits that key, it's, it's got three or four letters in one. So, <laughs> but uh, I like to telephone yet, you know. <laughs> yep, that's good. So do I. Well, we'll certainly in the, having the show notes, um, how to, how to get in touch with, or check out more about your farm and the website and those kind of things. And, and, uh, I'm sure that if you want to reach out to Dave, he'd be happy to visit with you because I can, he can be just another one of the, uh, adopted grandkids, uh, that he can help get started in the right direction. Yes, so sir. I really appreciate it today, Dave. Uh, and I, I sure thank you for all of your willingness to be a true pioneer in, in all things soil. And, uh, and it's just fun to see that, uh, you know, grandkids with emus and, uh, grinding, he was talking about grinding flour for the second time to try to figure out the right size for a customer before we started recording and just all these things he's still actively involved with and just keeps pushing the envelope. Um, well, it's great. It's, my, my, it's great. my hat's off to you. You've, you've done amazing things for agriculture. Well, I want to thank you for talking to me. I just, a little side note here, a little advertisement for us. Our field day will be April 8th here on the farm. Everyone's invited to come. Our keynote speaker is going to be Ray Archuleta. And we're talking about how to start a regenerative farm program. Uh, in the afternoon, we'll look at different soils through monoliths. Uh, 15 years ago, we took the soils to see what they look like. We'll take them two days before the field day can compare them to the same location. And hopefully my soil scientists can find a change, you know? And uh, uh, then we're gonna show you some really good cover crops. And we have 15 different types of triticale planted. That's, some are new and some are old and comparing the two to look at them. So it should be an interesting day and hopefully it's not snow covered, but uh, we'll take it however it comes, you know? Well, that's excellent, Dave. We'll, we'll certainly mention that in, in the notes here on April 8th, your field day. Sounds like a fun time, and uh, I'm sure we'll have a lot of people there that interacting and sharing information with each other. So thank you for making your farm available to everybody. Thank you very much. And thanks for your time today. Take care, Dave. Yes, yeah. Well, I sure hope you were encouraged as you listen to David's journey as he and his family continue to grow and explore each day what their farm will look like tomorrow all while making soil health a top priority in their operation. And as always, if you'd like to learn more about what we're doing to help growers implement soil health practices, check out our website at asn.farm, and there you can click on links to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. There's a lot of great things happening and always something to learn. Thanks for listening.